In 1819, decades after he wrote the immortal words, all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, the then-retired president Thomas Jefferson from his home in Monticello took for himself the liberty of editing the Gospels, creating a cut-and-paste book he called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, or more popularly known today as the Jefferson Bible. Jefferson grew up hearing stories about Jesus. However, he believed that the true Christianity had become muddled or overcomplicated with all this nonsensical, mythical whimsy or what he called unintelligible priestly jargon. You see, Jefferson was a man of the Enlightenment, a man of reason, and what mattered to him most was ethics. And so he thought that all the supernatural stories about Jesus, all the miracles Jesus did, including the resurrection itself, were confusing and irrelevant mumbo-jumbo that distracted from the moral things Jesus said. What he believed to be the real meat of who Jesus was, not the fairy tale version that we have. And so in retirement, for his own personal convenience, the founding father got a razor and cut passages from various copies of the Gospels, and he arranged and pasted them together into this single volume, now void of any instance or a mention of the miraculous or the supernatural. And what emerged was what Jefferson believed was the real Jesus. This warmly human man of history who walked the hills of Galilee, who mingled with crowds in Jerusalem, this, just this good moral teacher and preacher whose insights are worth commemorating, and nothing more than that. Jefferson once said that the care that he had taken to reduce the Gospels to their core message proved that he was in fact, quote, a real Christian, a true disciple of the doctrines of Jesus. I was browsing a used bookstore the other day when I stumbled upon a copy of the Jefferson Bible. Y'all aren't as excited as I am that I found a copy of this. I'd heard about this book in school for years, but I never saw it for myself. It's actually quite fascinating. If you want to look at it after church, I'm more than willing to show it to you. It's actually a really old copy. Copyright 1964. That's pretty old. <laughs> Smells like it, too. While I can appreciate Jefferson's contributions to the founding of our nation, he's a terrible theologian. <laughs> he's unorthodox and heretical in his understanding of who Jesus was. In essence, Jefferson denies that Jesus was fully God. He stripped away all that made Jesus the Son of God. One commentator described Jefferson's Bible feeling like a series of jokes, but they're missing the punchline. Jefferson never realized that without all the stories that he wanted to reject, it's likely that we never would have heard of Jesus in the first place. His attempt to fix Christianity left it feeling falling flat. Because without Jesus being the incarnate Son of God, the blind don't see and the lame don't walk, the multitudes are still hungry, and he's lying dead, decomposed somewhere in an unmarked grave halfway around the world. 
Because if Christ is not raised, the Apostle Paul will say, you and my faith are completely worthless and we're still in our sins. In Jefferson's Bible, Jesus stays dead. But the reverse can also be the true. Because without Jesus being fully human, if Jesus didn't have a full human nature like you and I, Jesus isn't still dead. You are. And I am. We're dead to God and we're dead in sin, as my theology professor used to say. If Jesus Christ isn't human, then he's irrelevant to helping us. And while he may be God, if he ain't human, it didn't matter. This morning I want to talk about that. I want to talk about how we can go on the other end of the spectrum from Jefferson, how we can deny that Jesus was fully human because apparently that was happening in the church that John is pastoring. We're not given much to go on in John's church except that some in his congregation have split in droves. Scholars think they have left over disagreements about some of the things John has written in this little pamphlet we call the Gospel of John. Have you ever read the Gospel of John? They seem, to be, they seem to be offended at some of the words John said in the first chapter when he said that the word that was at the beginning, the word that was with God and the word that was God, John said that word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is only the Son from the Father. Have you read John chapter 1? I'm assuming you know the opening lines of John's Gospel. We can hear that actually echoed in our passage this morning in the opening lines. Did you hear it when we read it this morning? We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen, and we saw him with our eyes and touched him with our hands. He is the word of life, and the one who is the life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what our ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may be in fellowship with us. It seems that John is elaborating on this theme that he introduced, that the word became flesh, that he's circling back around it, that he's reiterating it because apparently he has to, but John's not going to defend his theology like a lawyer. John's a better writer than that. John's going to defend his theology like a jazz musician. He takes this melody that he's introduced, that the word became flesh, and he riffs on it. Because he comes at it from a different angle. He puts a different spin on it because he's emphasizing and accenting and stressing more the flesh of Jesus than the glory. Scholar Rodney Reeves says more than any other New Testament writer, John counted on the imagination of his readers, taking an artistic approach to Christian spirituality. That's why whenever you read John, you know it's him. Because he sounds different and unique compared to anyone else. Because John isn't going to simply tell you what happened, though he will. He wants to prick your imaginations, to get your mind thinking, because he wants you to participate as a character in the story with him, as if you were there. I guess you could say John is more of a color commentator than the play-by-play guy, if you know what I mean. He uses his vivid imagery versus cold, hard facts. Because this is how he's going to testify that he and others witness God become a human being, a flesh and blood human being. Because John will say, not only did we hear him, 
Not only did he say things, that he, that he talked to us, that he preached. Not only did we, we see him with our eyes, that he had this physical appearance that we could see with our two eyeballs, but we could also feel him, that he was tangible, that he was solid, that he had a mass. He wasn't just this disembodied spirit. He wasn't an angel. He had a physical body just like you and I do. And wonders, one wonders if John is thinking about that time that he hugged him or that time that he gave him a high five. I don't know if they gave high fives in the New Testament. This is sensory overload for an eyewitness. Only someone like him would knew this, but he wants to stress the humanity of Jesus. He's not downplaying the divinity of Jesus. Not at all. Jesus is still the word of life, but John wants his listeners for a reason to know that he was visible, that he was palpable. This word that was made flesh, he witnessed this and others did too. He wants you to know that this morning. But it doesn't stop scholars from asking why. Scholars always ask why. That's what I get bogged down through every week. Scholars asking why. Some scholars sense that John's church are showing the early signs of a heresy known as Gnosticism. Have you ever heard this word before, Gnosticism? I'm not surprised. It popped up in the late second century, but it had some early roots maybe in the first century. These are the things we talk about in seminary. These are the fun things we talk about. This ancient philosophy known as Gnosticism was this mishmash of Christian scripture and Greek philosophy. And it was built on this idea of this duality between the corrupt material world of darkness and the divine spiritual world of light. And Gnosticism believed and viewed anything in the physical, anything material in this world, including our bodies, as an obstacle to true spirituality. Because for the Gnostic, the goal of spirituality was to escape this physical world. And one of the key things for our discussion is that Gnostics believed that our physical bodies were these dirty and filthy and evil things that belong to this physical world. If our human nature is made of a body, soul, and spirit, Gnostics would say our spirit and our soul are fine, but our body traps them, and that our soul is trying to escape and to liberate itself. And so an effort to protect Jesus' divinity, to keep him untainted by our physical bodies, Gnostics would downplay or diminish or even outright deny that Jesus was fully human. Because God can't inhabit that evil, sinful human body. I tried to illustrate it earlier with the, uh, with the onesie. I thought you guys would find it a little more funny. Neither here nor there. That's okay. But to get around Jesus being fully human, Gnostics believe that he put on like a cloak like a costume, like a onesie that he temporarily inhabited. He put on this moldy old coat that he couldn't wait to take off as soon as he put it on, and so he only appeared to be human. That's how they would talk about it. They had this, there's a name for it. It's called docetism. Again, it's not one of those funny words I learned in seminary. You can add it to your repertoire. But it claimed that Jesus only appeared to have a physical body, but in reality he was just a spirit. He was like a hologram, like a projection. And that he didn't really suffer and die on a cross, he only pretended to. John has a problem with this. The whole New Testament has a problem with this, but John has a problem with this. And depending how you read his letters, he suspects that this is brewing. And so this is why John will go out of his way moments ago to say, I have touched that body. I have put my hands on that body. Maybe he's thinking of the story of Doubting Thomas in the back of his mind. I touched that body. 
And second John, he will say, many deceivers have gone into the world and they deny that Jesus is the Christ and came in a real body. That's what John's fighting today because there seems to be a disconnect on is he truly the word made flesh, but we've seen the glory of the Son of God. How do we mesh the two together? Which one has priority, John? That's what we want to know because it's kind of mysterious and confusing. Is he fully God? Is he fully human? John says yes. So I'm going to try to do something silly. Get you involved. Get you Baptists talking to me. My theology professor had a way of explaining the incarnation that stuck with me over the years, so I'm going to try to do it today. He was fascinated by my choir conductor because he was fascinated that choir conductors can use their hands and make people say things to rise and to fall. He was really silly about it. He could not carry a tune to save his life, but he was really funny about this. And so here's what we're going to do. Oh, come on. I'm the only one that's excited this morning. Come on. This side of the room, you're going to say when I point to you, fully God, okay? Just keep saying it over and over again. This side of the room, you're going to say fully human. Just keep saying it over and over again. That's the incarnation. Is this where I go? That's all, folks, and the sermon's over with. God, without ceasing to be God, became what he created to reconcile it. <laughs> this is the good news. This is the gospel. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, the Apostle Paul will say in Colossians, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. Incarnation just simply literally means enfleshing or becoming flesh. And when we apply it to Jesus, what we're talking about is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took to himself human flesh without sin and was made human. He was made flesh and blood without ceasing to be God. These are some of the things that we just assume in Christianity, but we need to regurgitate it and we need to talk about it again because the Son of God now has two natures. He's both fully God and fully human, truly God and truly a human being. Gregory of Nazareth, this church father that you don't know the name of, but if my church, prof my church professors were here, they'd be impressed that I brought him up. But Gregory of Nazareth says, what he was, he continued to be. What he was not, he took to himself. Over the centuries, the church has debated, and trust me, they've debated, how do we describe this? This two natures of Jesus while maintaining silence about the mystery of it, because indeed it is a mystery. But church Christ, Christians across the spectrum, Catholics, Protestants, Eastern Orthodox, all agree that his two natures are not to be confused with one another. They're not divided. They're not separated. They're not pitted against each other, nor are they mixed and so for John and his gospel in this little sermon that we're going to begin reading, Jesus wasn't merely just this good moral teacher that Jefferson thought he was. He wasn't a nice human that appeared in human history, nor was he a superhero 
like those other people in John's church are saying. He wasn't some sort of demigod that he was somehow bestowed with these supernatural abilities, but he was trapped in this mortal body that was desperate to get out. He isn't Superman. John witnessed God in flesh. And not just him, his friends were convinced that Jesus Christ was God in person. Because John wants you to know it wasn't just him, it was this community that bore witness to this. This community of people saw in the person and the actions and the character of Jesus the very essence of God himself. And because all of y'all have been Christians a long time, this doesn't astound you. This was groundbreaking when John is talking about this. John testified that he heard the voice of God in the man of Jesus, that he saw in the face of Almighty God the face of a carpenter. They were the same faith. With his two eyes, he witnessed things that only God could do in the person of Jesus. With his own two hands, he touched the body of God. He was real. He was here. He was the word of life. This is astounding, friends. And John cannot help but talk about it because John will go on to say he's still friends with that God. He's still in a relationship with that God. And he says you can be in a relationship with that God too by believing his testimony and the testimony of those people that saw you and I. We we can enter into that same relationship and community and friendship with the God John saw and heard and touched, a God who was willing to take on yours and my stinky, sinful, dirty human nature. See, the problem the Gnostics and those people in John's church had is they misunderstood what our problem was. Scripture nowhere says that creation and humans themselves are intrinsically evil. But on the contrary, Genesis says that when God created everything, including you and me, in the end, he said it was very good. And it's true that when we look out into the world, we see all this corruption and this dysfunction and this decay and evil. It does exist, but it's because of something we call sin. It's this foreign contagion that has infiltrated God's good creation and like a virus, it has infected everything. But the thing is, God's not going to annihilate this world. God has come to redeem this world, all of creation. God's not going to abandon his very good creation. And that includes you and all of you, your body and your spirit and your soul. My theology professor, again, I mentioned him three times in this sermon. He always said, for that which he has not assumed, he is not healed. He's quoting that 4th century church father I told you about that you didn't know the name of. For that which he has not assumed, he is not healed. What this means, in order to redeem all of us, Jesus had to take on all of us. A complete and full human nature. And so when we say, did Jesus have a physical body? We say, yes. Did Jesus have a soul? Yes. Did Jesus have a human spirit? Jesus took on the fullness of human nature. Theologian Beth Felker-Jones says it this way, In the incarnation, God is with us and for us in ways we could never imagine without the Word made flesh. In Jesus, we see that God loves us as whole 
people, body, mind, and soul, because God took on our wholeness. We meet God's desire for intimacy with us, seen in the fact that God came to us, and he was among us, and he's taken on our human precarities. That's good news, friends. I believe John wants you and I to know that we have a relationship with a God who willingly loved us so much that he chose to take on our flesh this morning. It wasn't too stinky or broken or unworthy or sinful. No, the Son of God saw your body and your spirit and your soul, the entirety of your human nature, and said, yes, I will become human. I will eternally attach your nature to myself. You're not intrinsically bad. You're just broken. And you're worth saving because you're worth fixing because you're not a lost cause. Jesus is unlike any of the gods I've ever heard of before because the gods that I know would never be caught dead taking on a mortal human nature. But this God, this God, this God desired and longed from the very beginning to be Emmanuel, God with us. WWJD, what would Jesus do? He'd take on your human nature. He did whatever it took to get as close to you and personal as possible, to bridge the gap that was between us that sin created so that we could be in relationship with him. God used an extraordinary form of body language to communicate how much he loves you. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, but not just your soul, your body, your spirit. You're everything. This is who John saw and heard and touched. And this is now who he testifies about this morning. Do you believe that, church? Amen. In 2013, a five-foot-tall ceramic sculpture of the crucified Jesus Christ was put on display at the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. But this crucifix wasn't an ordinary crucifix. I believe I have some photos you can watch on the screen. It was covered in uh, dirt and grime and debris uh, from around the school campus. The professor, David Hooker, took a $4,000 antique sculpture and covered it with gunk that was donated by the school janitorial staff. He received these vacuum bags full of dirt and dust and bits of paper and other debris that you might expect to find, but there was also, <laughs> as disgusting as that is, other bits of people inside of it as well, hair and skin cells and fingernails, you name it. We're getting ready to eat. I'm sorry, I don't mean to ruin your appetite. <laughs> Thank you. He covered it with this dirt and this dust. You can flip through the, the slides, if you will. At first glance, Seeing Jesus covered in this mass of dirt and skin cells and human hair and, and carpet fibers, it may seem a little off-putting, and Hooker knows this, but he explains that this art is not intended to be sacrilegious. He's not trying to desecrate the cross. Rather, he's trying to represent the Jesus that sacrificed himself to atone for your sins, church. The goal of the crucifix was to invite people to reflect upon our collective dust our sin and uncleanliness that Christ took upon himself on the cross. How our dirtiness and our dust is now covering Jesus. It was meant to reflect upon what the Apostle Paul said, for our sake he made himself to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
And so as we're closing, I want to leave maybe one of those images of the cross on the screen today, one of the last few images. Because I think that's who John saw, and that's who I think John wants you to see this morning. This is what the disciple whom Jesus loved, the only disciple that made it to the cross, saw that day. What he heard, what he touched, what he bears witness to, and what he wants to tell you today. I think he wants to tell you today that you are forgiven. Some of you have a hard time believing you are forgiven and you've been a Christian a long time. You think that dust and dirt is still on on you and it's not on him. You still think you're a dirty, rotten sinner when in reality Jesus has taken it to himself, nailed it to a cross, and became what John will later say, the sacrifice that atones for our sins, not only our sins, but the sins of the world. The unattained is the unhealed. Jesus attained everything and is healing everything. You are set free from the guilt, power, and the nature of sin because Jesus took it on himself. Do you know that this morning? In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said, but supposing God became a man, suppose our human nature, which can suffer and die, was amalgamated with God's nature on one person, that person could help us. This morning, today, if you've come into this place, struggling or suffering know that jesus can sympathize with your weakness which is what the author of hebrews says he knows what it's like to be human henry nowen says there's no human suffering that has not been suffered in the agony of jesus on the cross no human joy that has not been celebrated by jesus in the resurrection to new life there is no human death that jesus has not died no human life that jesus has not lived in him through all has been created all has been restored to the glory of god he is the defender of the weak because he became weak and defenseless The one who cares knows because he needed and he was helpless and he was needing care himself when he was born. He knows what it's like to be tired, to be exhausted, to have the weight of the world on your shoulders, to be betrayed, to have loved ones die, to be homesick, to be cheated on, to be stabbed in the back. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be an outcast and to be misunderstood and to be estranged from your family, wrongly accused, verbally accosted. He even knows what it's like to be God forsaken. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me. He knows what it's like to be on the dark night of the soul. And this is just scratching the surface. And as we pilgrim through this world, this world filled with pockets and seasons of chaos and darkness, we do so with this Jesus. Emmanuel, a God who knows our struggle and our pain and our heartache and our frustration and our limitations and our fears because he's tasted it firsthand. He's experienced it and he wants to walk with you every step of the way. He wants to endure the hardships with you. He wants to cheer with you and laugh with you and cry with you and everything in between. One final thing and then I'm done. John wants you to see that Jesus because that's how you're supposed to be. When John saw and heard and touched the humanity of Jesus, he heard, saw, heard, and touched the humanity you and I were originally supposed to be before sin corrupted us, before we were marred and tainted by sin, before the image of God and our human nature was destroyed at the fall. Friends, 
I told you before that you do not sin because you're human. You sin because you are less than human, that you are subhuman. Being human is not bad because we were created very good and our humanness is prized in God's eyes. And God chose to become human to show us what it means to be human because we've lost what it means to be human. So when Jesus comes along, this word made flesh, and his flesh is exactly the same as our flesh, we discover it is, except it isn't corrupted like ours. He took on our sin. He took on the possibility of being corrupted, but he never allowed it to. He had every opportunity to, but he never sinned. He didn't fail like the first humans did because Jesus embodied in himself what humanity, true humanity was to be because Christ is the first true human. The one John lived with and walked with is the perfect revelation of who we're supposed to become. God is trying to restore us by taking the dust and the dirt off of us so that we can become human again. What I'm trying to say is that he came into this world as my humanity into my humanity so that he might redeem my humanity. That's the miracle of the incarnation. That's the mystery of the gospel. And so don't you dare minimize that because Jesus has come fully human so that you can become a different human. And so when we're saved, when we're washed by the waters of baptism, little by little, God is restoring us back to who we were. This new creation, as the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us and purifying us, as, he's, as we put the dust on him and take it all of us, we reveal the beauty of who we were meant to be, the kind of humans we were always supposed to be. We've just simply forgotten. And that's the Christian life. That's what it means to have eternal life. Jesus is calling us to be born again, to be brought back to life, to be made new creatures. That's the beauty of the incarnation. I think I'm done. I just felt led to say that to you guys today. Because some of us may need to remind ourselves that we're forgiven, that the dust is off us and on Jesus. Some of us today may have the dust of the road on our shoes today. Jesus had that too, and he knows how to be there for us. Some of us today need to know what our goal is. After the dust has been removed, where do we go to from here? I'm telling you, it's to be human again. All of that is wrapped up in God that loves you. 